we sing all the songs all the way to the end. That last little part, I just wanted to sit and I wanted to hear your voices. Again, you weren't singing to me. If you were, then we missed the mark. But isn't that what gives joy to our hearts? Regardless of what kind of week that any of us have had this week, I will rise one day. And the momentary afflictions of this world won't ever take that away or dampen it. Because it didn't come from me or anybody else in this room. No well-intended person in your life. It came from the throne of God, <clears throat> of his heart, to redeem people like us. Sinners saved by grace. What an incredible existence. And that's not even my message, but I feel like I just junk what I've got right here and just stand on that. But I can't. If you would, take your copy of God's Word, turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20 will be our verses for consideration. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. I've got to remember to do that so it's less of a distraction. But in actuality, we're coming to the tail end of a series, kind of the fundamental series uh, for this church. Um, but actually, what I just spoke about before I gave you reference to the scriptures it's really the heart of every single solitary message any one of us ever give or ever look into. God saves sinners through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the heart of the matter. And the Lord forgive us if any of us individually and as a church stray from that fact. Church essentials. The gospel and the church's mission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, I invite you to uh, uh, excuse me, stand in honor of reading of God's Word and ask that you'd follow along silently as I read aloud the Word of the living God. In, in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, now as we have the incredible privilege of sitting at your feet. The sufficiency of Scripture, the heart of the matter, that we gather together as your people sitting and listening to your word, not only to hear, not only to understand, but to obey. And that puts us in a position of need. And so, Father, I would pray that you would come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. What is a church? What are we exclusively of as a church? And what do we be about the business of doing? And so we turn to the only truth as afforded to any of us, to any individual Christian or to any church. Reveal your, your purposes and plans. Father, if you would come and do what we're going to do for ourselves, give us ears to hear. 
Give us minds to understand, give us hearts to be moved, and give us lives to be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. This morning is the final installment in our beginning series once we begin meeting here together of Church Essentials. And so, so far as sort of a recap, we began with the foundation of the basis of everything that we are and everything that we will ever do, and that's the centrality of Scripture. So in that, in a sense, in essence, if you want to put just the heart of that particular message, just where the church stands. The ultimate authority is found in God's Word, not in any individual, not as a group, and I'm getting waved at. Okay, that's all right. Pause. Ah, no problem. Ah, you might kill it. Thank you. There we go. I just can't roam like I want to roam. That's a... <laughs> okay. The centrality of Scripture, where the church stands, it is the ultimate, the beginning and the end of our authority. It isn't in any individual. It isn't within. Even a group of elders, it isn't in a higher ecclesiastical order as some denominations would have. It's found fundamentally beginning and end with the word of God, written and incarnate. So we began with the centrality of scripture where the church stands. Then we followed that with regenerate church membership. Who makes up the church? Is the church simply a sign out in front of a particular building in a geographical location, or is it truly what God describes in his word, beginning with the foundation, as to all of those persons who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who have been born again by the Spirit of God, who make up the church? And so whereas the centrality of Scripture is where the church stands, a regenerate church membership is who makes up the church. And all the things and the implications that you're going to see moving forward in the weeks and months and Lord's willing, the years to come of how we conduct church in particular membership and the portal or the entrance way for all of us, quite frankly, and then beyond to make up the church that we call Grace Covenant Church. And so that's who makes up the church. And then last Lord's Day or the last two Lord's Day, biblical church polity, how the church operates and functions. Is it just, hey, put together the best sensibilities that you have with the doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs you have within the church and all the sensibilities that they have in their secular work, just pull that together and march along with those type of orders? Or does God, God's word describes how one ought to behave in the household of God? And it does. And so our biblical church polity will strive towards being as close to the New Testament description of a way that a church functions in leadership, in governance, in polity, in order, and in conduct. And that's our pledge. So this morning is the final installment. The gospel and the church's mission. So if you looked at where the church stands, who makes up the church, and how the church operates and functions, the only thing that left is, okay... What does the church do? What are we supposed to be about the business of doing? So where do you begin with such a plethora of ideas out there on the landscape of, of churchdom or Christianity or evangelicalism or ecclesiology, wherever you want to put that, out amongst broad? Because you can look at 
a gazillion church websites and you could see a whole wide array of mission statements, which I personally am not a very big fan of. Our mission statement begins in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. That's our mission statement. Going back to our foundation of the centrality of Scripture. But I understand the purpose of a mission statement, to give clarity who we are and what we'll be about the the business of doing. So where do you begin? If our desire as a group of people, as believers, to become a biblical New Testament church, what is the church's mission? Where to begin? Well, I want to begin with two things. One, mission versus missions. Let me say that again. Mission, singular, versus missions, plural. For most of us, when we say the mission or missions of the church, we gravitate towards the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Evangelism. It's not less than that, but that's not our purpose as in point when we were establishing the function of the church. Certainly, we're going to proclaim the gospel. We just read the Great Commission, and we're going to unpack that in a few moments. But we want to look at it in a narrow sense. Because if every church wants to come up with their own mission statement, it's going to be unique to the individual makeup of the leadership in any given spot. But if we are all in agreement, this isn't our church, and the foundation that everything that we're going to do is according to God's word, then the beginning point isn't with us as individuals. The beginning point is whose mission is it? If it is his church that he bled and died for, it would seem to me, if he gives us the indicators through his word, how we conduct ourselves in the church, it doesn't only mean within us, but also without us. What do we be about the business of doing as a church? Mission versus missions. Whose task or mission is it? I believe with all of my heart, and every single solitary human being is prone to do this, is to get their eyes off the mission and be more involved with missions and I don't mean in just evangelism what I mean is simply this we get off our mind off the understanding of the fundamental understanding that the function of the church is what is called in Latin missio Dei it is the mission of God what is in other words if we're going to decide what we're going to be about the business of doing then we surrender look towards the one to whom the church belongs what are you trying to accomplish through the church does that make sense as opposed to leaving this over there or giving a nod toward that and then coming off over here and using the resources and the intellect and the innovative creative processes within our own hearts to be what this church is going to be It is the mission of God. You say, well, what is the mission of God? All right, I want to develop this in an Old Testament quickly and model and then a New Testament fulfillment. So what is God's mission? What is the missio Dei? What is the mission of God that holds us to that is what we are about the business of doing day by day, month by month, year by year until the Lord calls us home or returns? What is the mission of God? Well, hold your finger there in Matthew. Turn to Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48. Now, I had to land on one group of texts that would define the mission of God. And guys, listen to me. If nothing else is understood, if I muddy the water from this point forward, the only thing that matters is not my developing 
or exegeting these passages. What matters is that every man, woman, boy, girl in this room who desires to be a part of this church body, we're going to concentrate on the mission of God, not on the missions of men. All right, that is not to say we're not going to do missions. Follow me along. We want to land in God's mission. We don't want to go from it. We want to stray from it. We want to concentrate on it. We want to spend our resources and our energy and our time on the mission of God. And one of the best places that is developed, at least as promised, is in Isaiah chapter 48. Let's pick up in verse 3. God is speaking to Israel. He says, The former things that I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them. And they came to pass. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. That's the focus. We cannot leave the platform of the sovereignty of God of whom all things belong. We fold ourselves into him. We submit into his will. We don't have the authority nor the nerve to come up with a plan in and of ourselves as apart and separate from his. Verse 4, because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you, to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you've never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You've never heard, you've never known, and from of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Verses 9 through 11, we're concentrate here. Not only the purposes and plans that I formed before the foundation of the world, and you couldn't even handle them. If I did divulge them to you, I know your hearts because you're sinners. You would ascribe them to anybody but me. Guys, listen to me. As a commitment for myself and if the other two pastors would allow me. The moment either one of us, the three of us, stray from his purposes and plans for his honor and glory, you have every right to come sit us down in a loving, brotherly, or sisterly way and confront us with our sin because, in fact, that's what it would be. Your leadership thinks that way. We're asking the laity for all of us to think that way. But look at verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. And for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. If any group or gathering of people who will call in themselves a church, three or 3,000 and beyond, has any other purpose or design in what they are about the business of doing, absent of the glory of God, we're in sin. We're not, in fact, a church. We're not glorifying his name. It's not the purposes and plans of a church. Again, his mission versus missions. Now, that's the promise. 
All right, let's seal the deal. If you're sitting there and thinking, okay, that's an Old Testament God. That sounds like a promise. Where's the fulfillment? How should I sit right now? How should Brad be sitting here right now? Okay. How should Jennifer be sitting here right now? Okay. How should Ted be sitting here right now thinking in regards to God's promise that he would glorify his name and he's not going to share it with another? How is it sealed specifically with the redemption of sinners' souls like ours? And God's mission through his church. Turn to Romans chapter 3 and let me show you the fulfillment. Whenever you're looking at the two Testaments, Old Testament and New Testament, Old Testament in simple terms is promises made. The New Testament is promises fulfilled. Not only does he purpose and plan it, he will do it, but he has done it in that sense. The only thing left in his redemptive plan is the calling of his true church, those who have been truly been born again to glorification through his son Jesus Christ and new heaven and new earth, world without end, which, by the way, all of us in this room who are born again will be eyewitnesses too. But what's the fulfillment of that promise in Isaiah chapter 48? Look in Romans chapter 3 and verses 10 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 26. Simply the same things are being said. And the same things are being uttered, but a fulfillment. How is it God secured his purposes and plans of his mission? Look at Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. As it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Guys, we have to be honest at this point. This is a depiction of every sin-fallen heart. Every one of us. Worthless. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Foolish to even think in any way, purpose, or plan, any of us has the power or the desire to have a mission that even competes with the mission of God. It's the glories we sing about. That's why you sang so loud a few minutes ago. I will rise. How do you know you will rise? You will know you will rise because in your humble submission and the truthful understanding that I am a sinner so separate from God. And even in the graphic language of I'm not righteous. I don't seek after God. I had no fear of God. But God acted in his mission. How did he do it? Look at verse 19 and following. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. We don't have an excuse. Every single solitary person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law of God reveals that, shows that. Part of his mission, part of the plan, part of the ways to take us to the point where we can be folded into his mission. We're rebels against his will at this point. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's a bad spot. But that's an honest spot. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. But the good news doesn't become the good news until you understand the bad news. And that's equal among all human beings post-Adam. 
We are sinners in this description before the eyes of God. Not how we think of ourselves, but how through the creator God who made us sees us. Our line of demarcation isn't horizontal, it's vertical. It's against his holiness, his righteousness, his purposes and plans. That's the meaning of life. Not our own thoughts and wishes and wants. Verse 24, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I can't clean up my act in the best of my thoughts and wishes and wants on one given day or whatever it happens to be, to clean up my act, to make myself morally pure enough that I would be acceptable in the presence of a holy, pure, and perfect God. It's impossible. That door is shut. In fact, there, does, there is not even a door that exists to that way back to God. So many people have a problem with the exclusivity of Christianity. It's only because they want to try to, in some way, shape, or form, verbally communicate that they want to find God when the reality is all they want to do is justify their sins. Until you become broken to this point, you'll never understand the beauty, the glory of how sinners like you and I are folded in to the mission of God, the one true and living God, the maker of heaven and earth, who had a plan before the foundation of the world that then drops in people like you and I. So how does he do it? How does he fulfill the promise that he made back in Isaiah 48? Look at verse 21 and following. But now the righteousness of God, without the righteousness of God, no man stands before him. The righteousness of God has been manifested, made real, tangible. For us as human beings, we like things we can see, taste, smell, touch, feel, real, we think are real things. All of the righteousness of God has been made real, has been manifested, has been contained in not only one thought, not one purpose, but in a person. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, part of the purpose of the law reveal our sin and take us by the hand and guide us towards the only one who can resolve the problem that we have, sinners in desperate need of God's grace. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's not just a purpose and a plan. It's not a formula to fix something bad. It's not a ticket to miss hell and make heaven it's in a person it's individual it's relational it's tangible it's real not only before the foundation of the world and the eternality of jesus christ but world with it no beginning and no end the same yesterday today and forever if you're sitting here this morning and you aren't quite sure what you mean by meeting in a old grocery store and talking about not yet a church and covenanting together and a church constitution and regenerate church membership with a desire to see each and every one of us understand and know why we proclaim that we are forgiven, that we do have the assurance of rising only because of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with any type of leadership in an earthly sense. It has everything to do with God's mission and how it's fulfilled ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. Apart from that, there is no church. Apart from that, you can put slap any kind of placard, beautiful sign, big 
jumbotron with the latest technology for whatever. You can have all of those things, but absence of this truth, there is no church. But it has been manifested, and it is real. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, found not guilty of the sins against God's holiness by his grace, his unmerited favor as a gift. It isn't as though we do something to earn it and then get compensated for it. That's what we do during the week so that we perform a task and we get a paycheck. That doesn't have anything to do with the mission of God. It has everything to do with him not sharing his glory. It, everything is pointed towards the glory of God so that as we live and we breathe and we do as a church, it is for his glory. And the heart of it is what he's done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. It's not coming up with schemes and programs and plans, although we will have structure in some way, shape, form, or another, but not in absence of the understanding of the reality that we are what we are only because of the grace of God, his unmerited favor, not his merited favor in any way, shape, form, or fashion through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was, purpose clause, this was to show God's righteousness, excuse me, <clears throat> because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Christ, ladies and gentlemen, if the church is going to be on mission and understand what she is supposed to be doing, she must be willing to surrender all to God's purposes and plans for his glory through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, beginning and end. To do anything else is absolute foolishness. And it is worse sinfulness in some foolish way for a human being or a group of human beings or any church to decide they are going to have even the capability to rob God of his glory. That's the mission of God. Promised and fulfilled through his son, Jesus Christ. Here's my point. <clears throat> the sovereign God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, purposed before the foundation of the world <clears throat> to demonstrate his righteousness, his love, and his power for his glory alone. <clears throat> to redeem a people from within fallen humanity for himself by the means of the person and work of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, by his sinless life and his substitu substitutionary sacrifice on the cross to perfectly satisfy the righteous wrath of God against the sinfulness of mankind. That's the mission of God. That's the church. I don't understand why it's that hard. And while we should be doing this and we should be doing that, guys, the common denominator that draws us in, it doesn't matter what Chris thinks. It doesn't matter what Ken thinks. It doesn't matter what Mike thinks. It matters eternally to what God has already declared is his mission. And the beauty and the joy and the fulfillment is when you and I fold ourselves into that. So mission versus missions, whose task is it? 
and to be constantly reminded of that. And don't let any, even with the best intentions, the best of us in this room can slide off left or right from that mission. Unless we are constantly reminding ourselves of that mission and holding each other accountable to it. So that's the first thing where to begin. The second is mission versus fruit. And I'll be a lot quicker on this. Mission versus fruit. Now we've established whose mission it is. It's God's mission. It's God's church. We are God's people. But mission versus fruit. Fruit, I mean by this, specifically love of neighbor. Because what we're doing through this description, throughout this whole church essentials, is to look specifically at how the church is the church in the church as it functions as a group. But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus describes as individual Christians, you are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. We are not discounting the fruit of what we should be about, the good deeds out towards others around us to a lost and dying world to demonstrate obedience to a love for neighbor. We'll never stray from that, of course. But if you're not careful, then you're going to land, and I'm not going to go off too much on this. The struggles and the tussles and the toils about social justice and critical race theory. All right, you ready? I don't have time for that. In my little walnut-sized brain at best, I don't have time for that. To get distracted. All of those things, folks, listen to me, are nothing more than distraction away from the mission of God. There's not a single solitary one of you in this room that we cannot fold ourselves into and be submissive to that. Things that we'd be concerned about? Sure. Love towards neighbor and helping our neighbor? Absolutely. But not apart from the mission of the church being the church. Here's my point. We aren't talking about all the demonstrations of love Christians are to display to the world. As important as those are, our focus is more narrow. The mission of the church as the church as we gather together. Does that make sense? Okay. There's a wonderful book that will help you out a little further if you want to get a little bit deeper into this, and that's by Kevin DeYoung, who I hold in high regard. Anything that he writes, says, or does, I'd really commend that to you. Uh, he's churned out 15 or 20 books, and if you want to ask which one of the best of those I think would fulfill and help you and serve you and glorify God, let me know. But he is a gentleman of a different denomination, and that's okay. But he said this in his book that he co-authored with Greg Gilbert, What is the Mission of the Church? He said this, the mission of the church is the task given by God for the people of God to accomplish in the world. I'll say it again. The mission of the church is the task given by God for the people of God to accomplish in the world. In simplest terms, the mission of the church is the Great Commission. That's the mission of the church. The Great Commission commission god's mission has been revealed and accomplished through his son jesus christ it's there it's fixed we don't add to it we cannot take from it you can't improve upon perfection why would we even want to try god's mission has been revealed and accomplished we as his redeemed people are now commissioned will we be found faithful that's the only thing that says in the balance that's the only thing that's left in the balance will we be found faithful now back to Matthew chapter 28, okay? Let's go back to Matthew 28. So we established a couple of things. A mission statement for a church is all well and fine. It looks real good on a website. But if it's anything contrary to or different from or removed from the mission of God, then we're off track. 
It's his mission. Okay? So here's what I want to do. Quickly, more quickly than I would really want to go. And that would be three questions from the Great Commission. I'm looking at a group of people that I know have looked at these texts faithfully for many, many years and in many, many different ways. Okay? So what I want us to do is keep that narrow focus, okay, to the church's mission as the church being the church. I want to keep us with those kind of blinders on for this moment as we look at the Great Commission. So I just want to pose it in this way in three quick questions. Three questions. If our heart's desire and we recognize through God's word is his mission, how do we want to be found faithful? The Great Commission, I think, poses three questions that we must answer individually and as a church and hold each other accountable to it. You ready? All right, question number one in verse 18. Will we be submissive? That, that's all that you start there and you end there, quite frankly. Will we be submissive? Look at verse 18 in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, <clears throat> excuse me, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's stop right there. Start right there. Start, stop right there. Live right there. The authority within any New Testament church is the authority that is ascribed not to the staff, not to the elder body, not to committee chairs, not to the church as a whole in individual isolation. The authority has been earned and granted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what stands in the balance is whether or not we're going to be submissive. And you say, well, I've already done that when I prayed to receive Jesus, <clears throat> walked the aisle and got baptized. In a general sense, that to me is the same as that old saying for an older gentleman, when's the last time you told your wife that you loved her? And he says, well, 50 years ago we were married. I told her then, and if I decide to change my mind, I'll tell her otherwise. But other than that, I never told her again. All right, that is awful. She wants to hear it, and more importantly, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. The glory of God is ascribed to him, given from us to him, when we are constantly confessing with our mouths, we will obey. You teach, we will obey. Not only in word, but in deed. So the very first question that comes out for us, if we want to be found faithful as a church, and our heart's desire is to be a New Testament church, is will we be Submissive, that word authority, exousia in the Greek, refers to the freedom and right to speak and act as one pleases. Here's my point. A church is not looking for a group of creative and innovating men to lead and follow. A church is looking toward a sovereign authority in which to demonstrate their love in a consistent and resolute posture of submission to Christ's rule. And you say, well, that's... That's the big stuff. That's, that's when we get together and we sing about it and we pray. No, listen, it must be the fabric woven through our hearts individually and then knitted together corporately when we are together. Guys, when we reach the point, Lord willing, at the first of the year, to covenant together, all right, it isn't just a ceremony for ceremony's sake. It isn't just good words that have been hammered through for weeks and months at a time to craft it to where it, it blasts nothing but the glory of God through the word of God. It isn't a one-time thing. It's something that we are making a commitment not only here on this earth, but on the way through. We are a people that are covenant together with the understanding of the mission of God for the glory of God and nothing else. 
opinions, thoughts, desires are also surrendered under submission to the ultimate authority, and that's Jesus Christ. And so we're back to our beginning point, the centrality of Scripture. The Word of God, written and incarnate, is the one that we are submissive to. And as long as leadership is guiding us towards that end, then God's description through the function of the church is for the laity to follow the leaders of the earthly leadership, the under-shepherds, <clears throat> as they seek to follow the great shepherd, all of that in unity. That's covenanting together. That's not just saying, hey, I'd like to be hanging here with you for as long as I possibly can physically. No, if we're going to be a church that fulfills the mission of God's mission for the church, the first question is, will we be submissive? And I pray that we will and hold each other accountable. You ready? From here to there to out, back and forth together. There's no us and them. It's we. And we have one Lord and one Master and one Savior. And he and he alone, through who he is and for what he's done, has the authority over all things. Everything, every jot and tittle, every little bitty thing that we do. Number two, second question is in verses 19 and the beginning of verse 20. If we want to be obedient, we want to hear well done, good and faithful servants of Grace Covenant Church. The second question is, will we be obedient? You say, well, you just said submissive. No, submissive is submission is an act of the will to obey. Submission and obedience are two sides of the same coin. You cannot pray to receive Jesus Christ and then not be obedient and submissive to his word. You can say I'm going to be submissive, but until you act it out, live it out. We don't want to be just hearers of the word, but we want to be what? Doers of the word, like James described, putting those pieces together. The lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives individually and as a church. Will we be obedient? Look at verses 19 through the beginning of verse 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Are you ready? We don't have time, nor if I could in representation of existing leadership, do we have the capabilities to go further than the time would have us to occupy to fulfill all of these three requirements. It... it I went through seminary class after seminary class. Now, this was a long time ago, almost 20 years ago, where some classes were structured around, and I was just about to scream in my seat, why are we spending time trying to this innovation and that innovation? And by the way, that was before Internet. That was before um, big screen, multi-site churches and all this. That was right on the edge of it. And I'm thinking, where are we going when I don't have enough time, nor enough mental capacity or physical energy to do anything past these requirements? Why would we want to spend time doing that when God has called us to do this? And that's your heart of your leadership. And I pray that the heart of the leadership is from the heart of God that spreads to the people of God so that we are the church that glorifies his name. I'm going to be very quick, quicker than I would like to go, but if you'll notice, it begins therefore, or go therefore, based on the power and the authority of verse 18, all authority has been given to me, then go, act, do. You say, well, I don't feel capable of doing this. That's a good place to start. 
And you say, well, well <laughs> the world tells us, you know, you've got to be self-sufficient. You've got to be on the ball. You've got to be pretty sharp. Or, brother, you're beginning right out of the gate to fail. No, it's not. In the economy of God, the understanding of our humility and our emptiness propels us in dependence towards him and his word to God and direct us. To do otherwise is to focus inward rather than upward. That's not where we want to be found. And again, I'm going through this a lot quicker than I would like to go, but three requirements. Disciple, baptize, and teach. Disciple, baptize, and teach. Disciple, make disciples of all nations. What does it mean to disciple? Are you ready? It's simple as this. We are not individually in charge of saving anyone. All right, I don't know about you, but I don't like, I love the absence of that weight, okay? And I like the security of the one who does do the saving. And it's God and God alone. At that point, we are transmitting the gospel of Jesus Christ through human language, but we don't have any purpose. We don't have the power to transform anybody. No one in this room has been transformed by another individual. You've been transformed by the Holy Spirit of God through faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ alone. The supernatural, regenerate work of God transforming your life. I can't do that. You don't have the power to do that. Praise to God, He and He alone. That's His glory. But coming alongside of that, folks, is what we cannot do for most of our lives in Southern Baptist life, walk the aisle, dip them, and drop them. Sidebar here. You know what one of the biggest reasons that at least this fallible guy came to Matheson? is because the represent, representation of four guys on a search committee that said, those folks get it. What kept a guy right now 60 from exploring other options or going doing this or this or throttle back a little bit in ministry and get closer to his grandson and Lord willing more grandchildren. What keeps us here is what I see moment by moment, day by day from this group of people. You want to talk about preaching to the choir about what discipleship is, which is simply helping someone else follow Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what discipleship is. Two things are going on in our lives individually as Christians. We are disciples being discipled, and we are disciples discipling someone else. You cannot have one without the other. You can't just in isolation be transformed, growing in Christ, without the implication of going into someone else's life. Every person in this room has a sphere of influence over someone, primarily within the walls of your own home. That's your first church, by the way. The Grace Covenant Church will only be your second church. Your first church, your mission field, is within your own home. But in all my life, I've never seen this many people with this much focus. And the beauty of it is God just threw the parvins into the middle of it. That was already going on before I got here. Hunger and desire to know God's word. A hunger and desire to live out God's word in obedience. And even on top of that, a hunger and desire to see other people coming along the path with us. It's the heart of the community groups. But we don't need that to be just a breakout isolation program box. It's the heartbeat of the church because it's God's mission. We're not the originators of a mission. We are what? Co-missioned. We are given a task. We don't define and plan the task. We carry out the task by God's grace 
alone. So we're making disciples of every nation. We baptize, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Folks, we need to take that extremely serious. I do not have time that it's allowed me right now of what baptizo means, full immersion of a believer. I don't want to bash other denominations. But folks, we take baptism serious. And if I could for two minutes, I want to speak specifically to moms and dads in this room. With little ones in this room. And I'll put it simply as this. Would you rather have leadership that would just rubber stamp the baptism of your children? Or would you have the leadership with all love, all devotion, all kindness, all mercy, all grace, walking alongside of you, mothers and dads, and never bringing your children into the baptismal waters until for what all certainty God can give us from the outside looking in is assured within all of us? You say, why are you going on in all that? I'm just going to tell you right now, in over 20 years of ministry, not with any source of pride, exactly the opposite. With all transparency, there have been plenty of times when I went home on a Sunday evening after a baptism, laid my head down the pillow, and had such a sense of conviction in my heart. Are you really certain that little one you just dipped? Is truly saved. And you say, well, it doesn't matter. It, it matters what God, all right, listen to me. The mission of God must be carried out by the church in alignment with his mission with that type of weight. And you say, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is this. Baptism, at least in this isolation, is giving affirmation from the church body that what we can tell from the outside looking in a demonstration of a heart that's truly been saved. To do otherwise is to add into self-deception into a child's life so that when they're 15 or 20 and suddenly they're drifting away and they have no idea what they got saved from. Now again, we're not putting up barriers that they have to pass a theological exam with all absolute clarity. What we're doing is making a commitment that the best that mom and dad can see and affirmed by the elders that, yes, praise God, we will. But as we are baptizing, realizing, particularly on younger ages, and I'm not going to get into a specific age, is that we will come along and understand that a 10-year-old, a 13-year-old, can't possibly know what another 50-year-old has learned walking that many years with the Lord. We are covenanting to come alongside that and build them up in the foundations of the gospel by which they've been saved. In short, I could put it this way. Guys, do God his honor and do a favor to leadership. And don't put pressure on leadership to baptize your children because within the sincerity of your own heart, you just want to see your kids be saved. There's nothing wrong with that. But let's covenant together to make sure the best that we can tell from the outside in that what God has purposed and planned has happened. Baptizing isn't just, hey, a celebration. It is one of only two ordinances by which God prescribed through his word, that and Lord's Supper. And praise the Lord. If January closes out in February and we have not observed Lord's Supper in here, I'm going to pitch a fit. How about that? <laughs> the only way I can put to it. I long for that moment in that day. The sincerity, the weight, the understanding, the gravity isn't what we think 
It's the mission of God. And then finally, to teach. Teaching them deserve all that I have commanded you. I've never seen this much of a group of a people in what most would consider a small rural area that has a hunger and desire to be taught God's word. And that's why our commitment is in expository preaching. Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we'll be back on our normal path of verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Teaching. Learning, that's what disciple means. Disciple is mathetes. It means a learner. The one that sits under a master learning and desiring to do his will. And the only way to do that and the fulfillment, quite frankly, of all of the Great Commission is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I don't know of any other practical way to teach all that I have commanded you than verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. The only thing that really gets in people's mind is hurry up. I want to grow. I want to grow. I want to grow. Don't ever lose that passion to grow. But temper it with patience that it's line upon line, precept upon precept. This isn't a sprint. It's a marathon run in the form of a relay that you will pass a baton of faith to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation. And then finally, the last one, second half of verse 20. Will we be submissive? Will we be obedient? And will we rest in Christ? The last part of verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Anyone in this room who thinks they've got a perfect plan laid out for the future of this church, then I would suggest that one, you repent of that sin. Number two, keep it to yourself. But if you're willing to follow God's mission in the fulfillment of what he purposed and planned for any church, anywhere on the face of this earth, for any time and in any situation or any cultural context, then one day we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servants. You may have not been the biggest, but perhaps you were the strongest you may not have been on the world stage the most effective in the sense of seeing numbers explode. But you had a heart and desire to glorify my name. And you tempered that with a caution to never rob me of my glory. To do anything else is absolutely foolishness. Soon to be church. You know what? I can't wait till I have to think through. Quit talking to us like a church. Soon to be church family. If these are your hearts and desires, would you let that be known by saying amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's not left up to people like us to try to figure out what we are and what we're supposed to do. The beauty of being saved and being born again, to be a Christian, to truly say, Christ is mine and I am Christ's, is to know that it always is with you, everything in, every bit of it, from beginning to end. So, Father, find us to answer these questions we will be submissive what else would we turn to you and you alone have the authority we will be obedient teach us your word through the power of the holy spirit in our hearts propel us to kill the sin in our life to put off the old self and put on jesus christ and to help us to sit under your word and be taught and to teach all that you have commanded for your honor and your glory In Christ's name I pray. Amen.